Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, you recently spoke to a group of teenagers at a camp in Michigan, and along with them being an excellent audience, they had some thoughtful questions that you want to address in today's program. Well, yeah, Scott. And perhaps people can tell I'm not in the studio. I'm recording this by phone because I'm still away. Now, this camp is called Bear Lake Bible Camp. It's in Jones, Michigan, and it's had a very fruitful ministry in the lives of thousands of children, young people, and adults for many decades. And I was happy and privileged to speak at the camp. So what did you talk about in the sessions? You did present more than one, right? Well, yes, I did two different presentations. Both were on apologetics, but both were not related to creation. One was titled, The Historical Accuracy of the Bible. And we looked at a number of discoveries by archaeologists that confirmed places and people mentioned in the Bible. And you know, just as skeptics criticize and dismiss what the Bible says about God's role in creation, they also disparage the idea that the people mentioned in the Bible were actually at the places named, or that those places even existed in the time they are claimed to have existed in the Bible. And isn't it also pretty common for the critics to claim that the people mentioned in the Bible are fictitious? Obviously, they say Adam and Eve were mythological, but also important biblical characters like Noah, Moses, David. Some even denied that Jesus existed. Well, that's true. And so in that talk, I presented a number of archaeological discoveries that showed places like Shechem and Jericho did exist at the time they are mentioned in the historical record of the Bible as well as the names of King David, Hezekiah, the high priest Caiaphas, and Pilate being mentioned in extra-biblical records or artifacts. So that talk, The Historical Accuracy of the Bible, focused on archaeological evidence. Then the other presentation focused on biological evidence for creation. And what I did was focus on some of the objections that are mounting, even within evolutionary circles, to Darwinism, or to be more accurate, Neo-Darwinism. And I called that presentation Doubting Darwin. Now, we recently did a Scripture on Creation program in which you discussed an article published by evolutionists questioning the ability of natural selection to produce macroevolution. We did indeed, Scott. Maybe for the sake of any listeners who would be interested in hearing that program or even hearing it again, we should mm -hmm. tell them how to hear it. No, good idea. The title of that program was Neo-Darwinism in the Dumps, <laughs> <laughs> and it was published as a podcast on April 11th, 2023. So you can listen to it by going to the Scripture on Creation podcast and searching for it by that date, April 11th, 2023. Okay, so Dr. Scripture, getting back to the questions the young people asked at the camp, you said that you wanted to discuss some of them. Yes, yeah, Scott. Now, the questions they asked were not unique. By that, I mean it's not that I haven't been asked these questions before. But what I so appreciated about them was it demonstrated they were reading their Bibles and thinking carefully about what it says. And when a person does that, it frequently generates questions. And that's a good thing. Because one young lady's question in particular was about the differences between the accounts of creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But what she was wondering was how the two could be reconciled, not 
why they contradicted each other. Those differences in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 are routinely claimed to be contradictory by people who want to reject the Bible. Right. And even if they learn about the explanation of what is going on, they usually either ignore or reject that, too. And that's often sadly true. So let's look at what can be confusing about the two accounts in Genesis 1 and 2. What Aubrey, that was the girl's name, noticed was, in Genesis 1, it says God created the male and female seemingly together. But in Genesis 2, God creates Adam, even talks to him and gives him instructions, and then creates Eve. And in addition to that, the creation of the plants and animals seem to be out of order compared to Genesis chapter 1. So now we'll not read the account in Genesis chapter 1 about the creation of the plants and animals. But Scott, according to chapter 1, what day does God create the plants? Day 3. And the animals? Well, that depends on which animals you're talking about. Oh, how so? Well, fish and birds are animals. God creates them on day 5. But he creates the land animals on day 6. Very good, Scott. Exactly right. In Genesis 1, verses 25 through 27, we learn that God created the land animals first on the sixth day, and then he created his image bearers, human beings, later on that day. So let's read those verses. Genesis 1, 25 says, And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so in order... God created plants, fish, and birds, land animals, and then humans. Now let's read the account in Genesis chapter 2. But first, I just want to read verse 4 and explain something before we read on. So go ahead and read Genesis 2, 4, Scott. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. So notice that statement summarizes the information basically recorded in Genesis 1-1 through Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. And in fact, it almost repeats Genesis 1-1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then what follows are details about the order of God's creative acts from day 1 through day 6, and him resting on day 7. Then we come to Genesis 2-4, and it gives a general description again, like Genesis 1-1. Those two statements are like brackets surrounding the details described in Genesis 1. Scott, that is precisely what they are. And that is the common literary device in Hebrew, a summary statement at the beginning and end of a paragraph. Then what often follows is, in the next paragraph, more information, information that is even more detailed about something of particular importance that was only mentioned briefly in the previous paragraph. So when the first paragraph of the narrative is describing a sequence of events, what often follows in the next paragraph is a description of something that would appear to be out of sequence, but it's not. What is happening is the next paragraph is jumping back 
into the previous paragraph and including more detail about what was said. Dr. Scripture, I've heard you describe this before as a kind of flashback in the story. Yeah, and that's something we're used to in our own literature or in movies. So with that in mind, let's now read verses 5 through 8. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Okay. Now, did something seem out of place in what we read based on the order of events in Genesis chapter 1, Scott? Well, verse 5 said, No shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. But then right after that, God creates Adam. It seems like chapter 2 forgets that God created plants on day 3 before he created man. Well, that indeed is how it may appear. However, that's because you aren't grasping the importance of the word field when it says shrub or plant of the field. Hebrew uses different words to describe different kinds of earth, you know, just like we do. If I say I'm looking at a field here in Indiana, I'm most likely looking at a field of corn or soybeans, or it could be some grazing cows. The word field generally means a plot of ground used for agriculture, farming. But we have other words like dirt or ground or dust. Now, they all mean the material of the earth, too, but each has a different nuance of meaning. Well, the Hebrew word translated field in Genesis 2.5 is the specific word used for agricultural ground in Hebrew, similar to how we use it in English. And note, in the latter part of verse 5, it says, for there was no man to cultivate the ground. What verse 5 is telling us is, there's no plants growing in the fields yet, because, well, there's no farmer yet. Not that there are no plants at all on earth. So then what immediately follows is the description of God creating (laughs) a farmer, Adam. And that makes perfect sense. The first thing God has Adam do is cultivate the ground in verse 15. Go ahead and read verse 15, Scott. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So we see there's no contradiction in the order of the creation of plants and man, but there is another potential contradiction when we read on after verse 15. So let's read verses 18 and 19. Okay. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Okay. So Remember, Genesis 1 said birds were created on day 5 and land animals on the first part of day 6 before he created male and female humans. But is verse 19 saying God created birds and beasts of the field after he created Adam? Well, I have to admit it sort of sounds like it, Dr. Scripture. Oh, fair enough. So, Scott, read the first half of verse 19 from the NIV. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. 
Now, notice in that version an important difference that affects the order of things. Yes, it said the Lord God had formed the beasts and birds. And that is a legitimate, and I would say a better, translation of the tense of the verb formed there in verse 19. So, again, the order of the creation of the birds, land animals, and man in Genesis 2 does not contradict the order recorded in Genesis chapter 1. Then finally, we come to what Genesis chapter 2 says about how the female human was created, that is, Eve. Notice what takes place is still on the same day Adam was created. In Genesis chapter 2, it simply gives more detail about how God created Eve. Now, we don't have time to read it, but we're told God created Eve out of the body of Adam. And that becomes an important aspect of the nature of man later in Scripture. But what is going on in the account of Genesis 2 compared to Genesis 1? Genesis 2 is flashing back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and simply giving more detail than what is recorded in Genesis 1. Because the details of how God created Adam and Eve is important, and he wanted us to know more than just, quote, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And that's not what I say, that's what scripture says.